All right, happy Wednesday. This is the Weekend Debrief. I'm Josh Durso, the news director here at FingerLakes1.com. And as per usual, I'm joined in studio by Ted Baker. He's the host of Finger Lakes Morning News over on Finger Lakes News Radio. Uh, Ted, welcome back. Do we have transmission switchage? Has it been completed? Uh, yes, we have. We're on 106.3 FM. Actually, the previous 95.9 is still running alongside for a little while longer, Okay, uh, but not very long. So 106.3, the coverage, the total coverage is about the same. It's not exactly the same geographically, so apologies if your area Ouch. was one that got 95.9 better than 106.3. I think its coverage is a little better to the west towards Canandaigua, uh, whereas 95.9 was better to the east towards Seneca County. Good news for me as I commute from Rochester each and every day or most days of the week. Um, Before we get into our uh, big run, or I should say the the topics that everybody expects us to be getting to, which is coronavirus, uh, I wanted to touch on a few things that either are or have not yet been stories on fingerlegs1.com. First up last night, the Seneca County Board of Supervisors met, and it was really quite a, a tense exchange that that broke down between IDA uh, Executive Director Sarah Davis and a few members of the Board of Supervisors. Uh, at issue, once again, like what you and I talked about a few weeks ago, Ted, was uh, the sale of the Hillside Campus. Uh, the big news, I think, that came out of that was the, the realization that uh, migrant housing is, is either in the works or happening actively uh, in one of the buildings that was referred to by the IDA as dilapidated, uh, just a few months ago while they were going through the process of trying to sell it. Now, for background, the property was assessed, uh, the, the the raw assessment was in the millions, the valuation of the property was in the mid like twenty to $350,000 range, I believe, uh, but it actually was sold to Earl Martin, who owns another large portion of the, the depot property, uh, for $65,000. So you have that part of the issue where uh, a lot of folks are frankly just unhappy with the price, the process, how it was advertised, how few people actually came forward, developers that is, uh, to do anything with it because it was sold during the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, that being said, the the debate last night really seemed to be uh, hinging on what the IDA said before and what they are saying now. So before it was a matter of, and I actually think you guys interviewed a member of the IDA fairly recently, or maybe it was Lucas who did, um, where the argument was effectively made, you know, we just wanted to get rid of the property. Like, what are we, what are we supposed to do with this? Um, but now it appears as though the IDA may have known, or there may have been some indications, meeting minutes from a planning board meeting in Romulus, uh, in the month of August show that uh, there was desire to put migrant housing, a company wanted to do migrant housing in Romulus or Varick or in that area, and they were directed to the hillside property. They were they were told to go that direction. So it calls into question, and, and we we talk about this all the time, effective communication and also the way in which an agency that struggles with transparency, whether it's perceived transparency issues or real transparency issues, is always going to keep cropping up if there's so much uncertainty connected to something like this, a sale of a property. So I'm curious, obviously this hasn't been heavily reported yet, but I'm curious, uh, as you hear the, the latest turn in this, surprised, unsurprised, or you know, is this, should this be what we, what we expected to see? And, you know, is the IDA actually maybe not in the wrong? They sold the property, they're done with it and, you know, move on. Well, I guess I'm not really terribly surprised. One of the things that I find fascinating about all this is this description of this property is dilapidated. It's not that long since Hillside was in there housing kids in these buildings. So were they in substandard shape then, or did this now just happen? I, I, I struggle to understand that part. And I, I just wonder if government agencies have the expertise to be in the real estate business. It sounds like the IDA wanted to get rid of the property. Someone came along and they said, whew, this is off our hands now. Uh, would it have hurt them to hold on to it longer? Uh, 
we talked about this, I think, the last time, is, is how widely did they market it? Is there a chance that there's some developer out there halfway across the country for whom this property would have been perfect and they would have paid the assessed price at least, if not more, but they didn't know about it? I, I don't know the answer to those things. Yeah, it, it's interesting, I think, because there's this, um, I, I think there's a functional description of what IDAs are instructed by the state to do. And then there's the expectation among residents, taxpayers, a lot of times elected officials, of what they want them to do. And I think the strained relationship between the Board of Supervisors and the IDA is probably partly to blame in this specific circumstance. But anytime there's disconnect between the two, or there's a perception that that the IDA isn't doing its due diligence, and I'm saying this is in any county. We've seen it play out in Ontario County. We've seen it play out in other places, too the idea is always going to be at fault. You know what I mean? Like in terms of the court of public opinion, the idea is always going to be at fault because what are they doing? Most of the time they're giving out tax breaks in some way, shape or form. Until we change the system, and this is the question that kept bouncing back to me, especially on Twitter as I was tweeting about it last night was, well, what could have been done differently? And the answer is until IDAs systematically change, the way IDAs function systematically change, you're not going to, you're always going to have these types of issues cropping up. Should the IDA have known or done a better job of figuring out before they accepted Earl Martin's offer, what he was going to do? And furthermore, another question, I think big picture that, that, you know, every single IDA or development corporation has to wrestle with moving forward is, what happens when a developer changes up the plans after the deal is done? Should there be some sort of timeline on how long they have to either follow through on delivering the number of jobs that they're going to say they deliver or also delivering on the actual X's and O's of what they say they're going to deliver? If you're going to build 410 <clears throat> steel boxes, then you better produce 410 steel boxes and not you know three months after the deal is the, the ink's dry change it up to, well, we're going to produce uh, 405 tents instead of steel boxes. Uh, because you're, you're going to have this, this perception in, in some pockets of the community, at least, that the IDA knew all along. I think that would be a good start, would be to say, okay, let's, let's make this more solid contractually or legally, however it's done. And, and have more follow-up, because that's been one of my complaints for years, is, is these big, splashy announcements, and we run them, and you run them, and then, you know, five years go by, and who remembers to go back and say, oh, yeah, there's not 410 boxes, there's 112. Or, yeah. And obviously, economic conditions change, so I don't know how much you can lock these things into stone. Uh, how widely did the IDA market this property? May, it, it's entirely possible that no one else other than Earl Martin was going to be interested, and they made the best deal that they could, and that there's really no reason to blame them for anything. But we just really don't know. Yeah, and I think in, in this specific circumstance, you've also got... I could I could tell just from the reaction and... Let me rephrase that. I could tell from the reaction in the room as well as the reaction in sort of the real-time feedback as people were watching this meeting, uh, when the words migrant housing came up, a lot of, did that, that raise some brows. And, you know, good, bad, indifferent, I, I think that, you know, this is a due diligence problem. And at the end of the day, you know, every, every idea is going to have to battle with this one. I'm not really sure what the answer is, but that's something I wanted to just sort of talk about off the top here. Um, next little item that hasn't yet been uh, published, but is something that I think uh, is interesting to talk about because we're both in the news business and uh, there were no criminal charges in the fatal crash involving uh, a motorist and a bicyclist in Clyde. Happened over the summer. Uh, a teen was on his bicycle early in the morning. It was dark. Driver didn't see. Unfortunately, the, the, the teen passed. Um, and anytime we have a story like this, there is typically some response where folks will say, well, why did you publish the person's name who was 
not criminally charged or found to be, I don't want to say found to be innocent because that's clearly not the implication of not being charged. Um, but it, it's interesting to me because my philosophy has always been, it's part of the public record. Like if I'm involved in an, in an accident, good, bad, or indifferent, you're involved, like I was involved in that accident that prompted a response from taxpayer funded agencies and officials. It feels to me like if you start squelching pieces of information from various, because at the end of the day, what what was what was this based on? You know, these stories were based on, and we were definitely not the only ones who ran this particular story with the names published. The Times did, I believe you guys did, it, it, folks did. Um, it's part of what police and law enforcement and in this case, prosecutors said and released. And that is not information that I think we should be holding back on, especially in this moment. I think if there's a narrative that police are trying to uh, put out there, or if there are statements that they are trying to put out there, I think that if you want to be critical of those actions or critical of those narratives or statements or whatever the case may be, they've got to get out there first. You've got to be able to see them. I, I think in general that we should be in favor of openness. I think we're in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because if you withhold this information, let's say it turns out to be a prominent person and then we get criticized, well, why are you covering up for this guy or what are you trying to hide? So uh, I don't really have any problem with it. And, and we have the presumption of innocence. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't really follow that. They see a name and they see that 32-year-old so-and-so was accused and they equate that with guilt. But I don't think as information disseminators that really is or should be our problem. Yeah. And another uh, another story that's definitely connected, uh, the throughway crash where a, a family was pretty well devastated uh, by it. A Geneva driver driving a pickup truck slammed into the back of the minivan. Two young uh, kids died in that accident. Early September, I want to say it was in the first week, um, we saw a couple quick releases come from state police within a week or so, uh, and then everything went dark. Uh, we had reached out, so our newsroom and I had reached out at the end of September, at the end of October, and then at the end of November. And it was interesting because uh, there were no criminal charges filed. State police said that they worked with the local DA's office to uh, get to that conclusion or get to that space. Um, the DA had contended here in Seneca County in late October that they were just, the DA's office was just waiting for state police to finish their investigation. There wasn't really any indication that no charges was going to be the outcome. Now, the, the interesting part, I think, and we haven't heard a ton about what the investigation actually looked like, but here's the thing that strikes me as odd. The final press release in September that was released by state police said that charges were pending. That was what it said. Take that, take that as you may. Fast forward two and a half months and you haven't heard anything. And then the first thing we hear is no charges filed and that previous press release was wiped from the internet. It disappeared. I don't... <laughs> This could be completely on the up and up, or it could not be on the up and up. No one will know. But what is known, and we, we published a screenshot of the press release when we updated the story because, frankly, I felt like it was part of the story at that point. You had this, this investigation, which even fatal uh, car crash investigations typically do not last months, maybe sometimes a week or two, but never months, usually. Um, so it was just interesting, I think, that after all of that was said and done, you had the previous press release just disappear. Strange. Yeah, I, I again, in the effort, in, in the interest of transparency, why not just explain? If, if there's a reasonable explanation, wouldn't most people accept it? If you say, well, we looked into it and we thought X, Y, and Z had happened, but it turns out X and Z didn't really happen. Therefore, we feel there was no need for a criminal charge. It, it's just, 
you know, just give the information. Very often what we deal with in the media is we deal with people who give us the information they want us to have and withhold everything else. And, and that's where you have to dig, and, and then we're seen as being antagonists instead of just trying to get to the truth. So, okay, if there were no charges, why? Simple release. The, the, I mean, yeah. go into whatever little or great detail you feel is appropriate. If there's, if there's some sort of privileged information or, or something that doesn't really need to come out because it doesn't serve the public interest, fine. But to just say... Yeah, we're going to charge somebody in a couple of days, and then, nope, we're not charging anybody, and you don't get to know why. Doesn't really work for me. Yeah, it's um, that's that's one of the head-scratchers, and unfortunately, <clears throat> at the end of the day, it breeds the kind of mistrust that we wind up talking right. about a lot on this podcast uh, with law enforcement in general. Let's talk about some non-law enforcement stuff. Before we get into <clears throat> um, our COVID headlines, uh, there was a, a really interesting piece by Bill Fulton on uh, from Rice University. He's the former mayor of Ventura, California, on Medium that uh, actually led to us doing a podcast with him, talking about urban renewal in communities like Auburn, Geneva, Canandaigua. He's from Auburn. He grew up in Auburn. That's where he started. He was actually a reporter for The Citizen way back in the day. Uh, really interesting guy. Really interesting conversation. Anybody listening should go back and check that out. Um, and also read his piece. It's a it's a tank. I think it's like three thousand words long, but it's definitely worth reading because it's interesting to me that given the context of the pandemic, a lot of these communities are going to be in a very interesting place when they get on the other side of this. Because the the meat of of his piece is really hinging on this idea that communities like Auburn were starting to make up ground from the losses during the urban uh, the urban renewal period in the 60s and 70s when you sort of had the the birth of arterials and things like that bypass get around uh downtown and into suburbia and it's interesting because all of the the ground that's been made up is built on restaurants breweries uh small businesses that aren't your typical sort of you know a bunch of lawyers in a building or your your non-traditional you know it's it's in effect tourism and service and it's fascinating because all of the progress that's been made say in the last two decades could very easily be lost on the other side of this thing but you started to read his piece that you say you got through like half of it um as you're reading that what was standing out to you well, it, one thing was the parallels to where I grew up. I grew up, well, I, I was born in and grew up in a neighboring community in a paper mill town in northern New Hampshire. And much like a downtown Auburn, it thrived. And, and these are one of the factors that I was going to get into is it thrived until in the mid-1970s, the founding family that had always owned the paper company sold it to a publicly traded company. Now, job one becomes return to shareholders. The owners didn't live in the community with the workers anymore. The owners didn't care about the community. They cared about maximizing return. If that means offshoring jobs to uh, Malaysia, then that's what they did. Uh, so there's that. And then it, it's I, I, I've thought about this a lot because I'm fascinated by just the way life has developed in America over the 20th century. I think what we had back in the 50s is we began... Well, first thing was we had the pent-up consumer demand at the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. Everybody sacrificed through World War II. Then the soldiers came back, uh, you know, two cars in every garage, chicken in every pot. So there was this demand for more. And then the automobile got better, more reliable, and more comfortable... And now it became practical to drive 25 miles away to eat dinner or to buy things when it really never was. I mean, even when I was younger, uh, get into a car on a winter day and it was miserable. If you were lucky, the heat would warm up by the time you got where you were going. Now we get in, we push a few buttons on the touchscreen, and five minutes down the road, it's 72 degrees in our car and we're pulling our jacket off. So I think the car is another factor. And then I think... At about that time, advertising began to equate products with 
manliness and sexiness and lifestyle rather than you go back, you look at ads from the 1920s and the ad was, this is what this product does. It's good. It's sturdy. And then we went into the, you know, Joe Namath with the shaving cream and the hot girls around him. So I think kind of all those factors came together to really change life right around the 1950s or so. And that was the thinking of the time, is build bypasses and, and go, 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 America on the move. And then we looked back 20 or 30 years later and said, wait a minute, is this really what we wanted? Yeah, and I we're going to be talking about economic restrictions and things like that here in a little bit. Um, but I think in general, I, we're still going to be seeing the trend, I think, toward more walkable communities, more... Um, everything is here kind of communities. And I think it's probably even going to be happening in a lot of the suburbs. One of the interesting things that as I read some other pieces by Bill um, that he's published on sort of the, he is a, an urban planner by trade. So this is, this is what he does. And one of the interesting things that he briefly mentioned in the podcast, but he's written about at length a couple other times is what we're seeing in even a lot of suburbs is this sort of uh, drive toward completeness again. This drive toward putting as much of the essentials or as many of the essentials as you can uh, into these suburbs where it was for the 90s and early 2000s, it was the opposite. It was, you know, put your very sort of dry, bland corporate things in the suburbs and put your interesting things that people are going to go to in the city. The interesting things are coming out again, and that trend is probably going to continue. But when you talk about the pandemic, obviously, um, a lot of the things that have been around or a lot of the businesses that have made a mark or started this revolution, we'll call it, over the last 20, 30 years, you know, it likely could be gone after the pandemic's over. I think one of the things that's going to happen after this pandemic is I think a lot of us are going to begin to question the consumer society and life built around work and working and working and working to buy things that are outdated next year and, and pay $1,000 for a phone only to buy another one two years from now that's one millimeter thinner and has some new gadget on the screen. I, I, I really think, and, and it's going to create a challenge because I think we're going to see a general contraction of the economy. I think as people live what is looks like now is going to be a year or more, maybe a year and a half, without a lot of things, and in many cases with less income, I think they're going to start to say, hey, we got through this okay. I don't really need the latest consumer gadget. I don't need to stand in line to buy the Xbox 5 or whatever it is, PlayStation 5, that's 2% better than the PlayStation 4. I think there's going to be a real re reimagining, to use the uh, hot term these days, of the way we live and, and what we live for. Yeah, uh, I, would, I would agree. To a certain extent, I, I think that the things that become... I, I don't want to go that far. I think maybe the things that people spend more money on will shift a little bit. So I think on the other side of this, travel and experience are probably going to be bigger spending items than, say, the latest gadget. Partly because, and you know, this is this is criticism of of personal technology in general. You know, as someone who literally works in and is surrounded by technology constantly, you know, we haven't seen a big leap in smartphones for about six years or so. We haven't seen a big leap in in personal computing technology really in in the last decade. Laptops are about as good as they were a decade ago. Um, if you had the if you had the resources to get you know the best processors, the best this, that, the other thing, um, has the the cost of entry decreased a bit in those categories? In some, yes; in others, not so much. But I think a lot of people are going to be much more focused on if they can find a house or an apartment that's centrally located in a community where they can work from home. Um, I think those the things that can be tailored to experience, meaning the new restaurants, the new bars, the new uh, quirky businesses that pop up in downtown spaces that people can walk to, you know, I think is going to be a big um, 
a big shift. And then also on the tribal side, and this was one of the things that Bill mentioned in our in our conversation was um, how planners are probably going to have to focus more on, uh, I forget the exact phrasing he used, but effectively single parking uh, events or single park single parking community. What do I mean by that? So like if you're visiting Rochester, you're able to park in one spot and walk to everything else that you do as an outsider to that community without having to go in, park, drive, go in, you know, sort of over and over and over again, which is classic suburbia in terms of what you have to do. You go to the strip mall. Most people don't even, you know, the strip malls are so physically large that people don't even like, you know, walking from one end to the next, especially if the weather is poor. So, you know, I think there's going to be more focus on creating um, single parking experiences rather than, and experiences in general in terms of travel. I don't think, as an example, listening to the the folks in tourism talk about uh, what's happening now uh, in tourism, local tourism, Finger Lakes tourism, because of the pandemic where you have a lot of regional travelers, I think that's going to continue afterward. I don't think that's going to change because I think a lot of people are figuring out now that, you know, I can do a dozen day or two day trips with my family instead of one or two large vacations per year in which, which are you getting more value out of? Which are you getting more bang for your buck out of? And I think that's probably always a pendulum swinging back and forth. Yeah. But right now, at least probably for the next five to 10 years, we're on the short side of that. For sure. I think also to even go one further than your single parking idea, I think is a no parking idea. I think more and more young people are looking at the cost of obtaining and maintaining a car. And they're saying, why do I need this? If, if I live in an apartment in a, a nice downtown, you know, say downtown Geneva, you can walk to good restaurants, you can walk to the Smith Opera House and see a show, you can walk to craft breweries and cideries, and and, and that, that's the other thing I think that, that symbolizes all this is the return of craft. Yeah. People are, I think, less interested in the mass market chain store product and more in something that's crafted. I mean, we've seen that, uh, as most people know, I'm a big craft beer aficionado. In the late 1800s, Breweries were largely small and local. Then came your Schlitz and Budweiser and Miller and Coors and everybody else, and it became big and corporate, and now we're seeing it go back the other way. So we we just, New York State, just barely in the last couple of years, equaled the number of breweries it had back in, I think, the 1860s or 70s. So it's it's a bit of a pendulum shift, I think, driven by young people. I mean, that's that's who uh, Madison Avenue likes to reach. So it's, it's you know, your age and, and even younger yep. are going to be the ones, I think, driving these new trends in development and transportation and entertainment and, and the way we live and work and shop. Okay, so let's get into uh, the COVID headlines. Uh, obviously, a lot of changes, it looks like, are coming at least in the next five to six days. Uh, first up... Governor Cuomo is expected to make an announcement on new restrictions on businesses like restaurants and bars. Uh, the The question that I actually threw to you when I built this script yesterday was, could the entire region be turned into one large orange or red zone? And after listening to uh, the Seneca County Board of Supervisors meeting last night and hearing what uh, Chairman Heisen and County Manager Mitch Rowe heard uh, on the, the, the daily regional control room call, it sounds like that actually may be what ends up happening where the entire, you know, large swaths of the state are going to go into uh, orange or red classification. It, it's interesting to me because I am not totally sure how the guy, because listening to what the governor said in the beginning of the week, which was that if uh, the hospitalization trend, the rate did not level off by the end of the week, we were going to see upstate indoor dining go from 50% to 25%. That does not jive with a complete and total orange and or red zone unless unless there's a real recalibrating happening in Albany right now on what the next phase of this response to the pandemic is going to be like. Well, and here's the thing about this week's announcement is... 
we keep getting this guidance, in quotes, that leaves us with more questions and fewer answers than we had before. Why the sudden pivot to hospitalization rates? All year long, it's been positive test percentage. That's what we get in, you know, you get the same email we get every day with the governor's (laughs) update. Now suddenly we pivot to hospitalization rate. And I'm not even sure, you know, here we are in the news business, I'm not even sure what the triggering threshold is. It was something about 90% of something. I'm not even sure what it is. So nobody knows what the guidance is. And then secondly, the only thing he mentioned in the entire thing was restaurants. Right. And then... Uh, you, you probably saw this. Channel 10, Jennifer Lukey, yeah. said, well, wait a minute. What about all these gyms and s- salons and everything? Now it turns out that they apparently were never spreaders of any significance to begin with. But you're never going to hear Andrew Cuomo say, I was wrong. It's like the Fonz, if you ever remember that Happy Days episode where, where he tried to say he was wrong and he couldn't get the word out of his mouth. So I don't know where this came from. Here's this new... You know, we had phase one, two, three, four. Then we had colors. Now we have hospitalization rates. And I just don't understand So I think what changed. I think in fairness, this is probably a better approach. Using hospitalization rate is probably a better marker for restricting economic activity than just general positivity rate, right? Because it varies by how many tests are actually being done. And in a lot of communities, I'm now actively hearing officials in public health, officials at the county level, officials in uh, schools even saying we need to do more testing to drive our numbers down. And that is a complete, in my view, that's a complete manipulation of what the virus, manipulating what the virus is really doing in the community. It is. And here's the other question. We, we've, we talked about this uh, extensively this morning. When, when the governor and the state say Finger Lakes... They really mean Rochester, Monroe County. Mm-hmm. The population of Monroe County, I looked it up, is 770,000. The population of the areas that we serve and you serve, uh, Ontario, Seneca, Cayuga, Yates, Wayne, roughly a quarter of a million. Yep. So about three quarters of this Finger Lakes population is in Greater Rochester. If you look at the Ontario County dashboard, uh, I didn't today, but I did yesterday, it said there were 12 people hospitalized in Ontario County because of COVID. Right. We have three hospitals in Ontario County. We have Thompson, we have Geneva General, we have Clifton Springs. 12 divided by three doesn't sound anything like overwhelmed to me. So two things on that, because this is one of the things that that cropped up last week, and it actually prompted me to do the the one thing that I've only done twice this whole year, which is post to Facebook. why people are hospitalized is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Like the the counties, and here's where I th- this is why I think focusing more on hospitalization rate is just a better process because we already know that we don't have a lot of hospital beds around here. And while there's only three hospitals in, or there are three hospitals in Ontario County, they aren't just ser- serving Ontario County. They're okay. also serving Seneca County and serving Yates County because Yates County only has one very small hospital. Um, and it, it's it, part of it, I think, is when people start to, to focus on the why individuals are hospitalized in relation to this, this whole idea that if your hospital gets full, it doesn't matter why it's full. It just matters that it's full. And whether you have a – whether they're – Maybe it's a 70-30 split. Maybe only 30% of the people who are hospitalized are hospitalized because of COVID. But you're assuming at the same time, because a lot of what we've been hearing in terms of national reporting is that the bar to get hospitalized across the board, whether you're having you know, maybe some sort of heart issue or you're having some sort of other life-threatening issue or COVID, is raising. It's getting higher because they need to keep as many beds free as they can for the people who may come in because of COVID. I think there's a bit of an illusion among most people about how robust our hospital system is or is not. To be clear, it is not. Our hospital system in the Finger Lakes is not robust, period. And 
if you have a scenario where you are all of a sudden, and I think this is where it gets back to the governor's plan, uh, plan, which is if within three weeks you are going to, you are on pace to get to 90% hospital capacity, that's when restrictions will be imposed. I think to me that makes a hell of a lot more sense than just haphazardly basing it on how many positive tests there are, which testing, even in the best case scenario, has been super inconsistent, positives, negatives, this, that, the other thing. At least this is something real, right? Like these are real people who are in the hospital, quote unquote, filling it up. And that is like our last defense for the virus. That's our last defense for these communities. And I just think that, you know, with all of the focus shifting to hospitalization, that's at least better. It's a better approach than what we've had to date. Well, first off, I want to congratulate you on having only posted on Facebook twice this year. I, had I done that, I'd <laughs> save myself a lot of grief, and I'm really considering uh, adopting such a policy. We, we talked about this a lot this morning, too, because I was looking at the governor's report, and it said that statewide, 0.02% of the population yes. is in hospitals. That means two people in every 10,000. Yep. And yet our hospital beds, I believe the figure was, are 73% full. Yep. We have a real That's huge. problem yeah. <laughs> if two-tenths of a percent of the population can fill up three-quarters of the hospital beds in the state. That would be a, a fascinating topic for a podcast all of its own. What happened to healthcare in America that we went, we're now at a time when essentially we're hoping nobody gets sick because we really don't have any place to treat them if they do. Well, and this is that interesting, and I, I believe it was, I want to say it was the journal, one of the podcasts by the Wall Street Journal that I listened to. Um, they had actually talked about how a couple hospitals or collectively in New York City had more hospital beds during the 1918, 1920 flu outbreak than they did for this pandemic. There were more hospital beds in New York City 100 years ago than there are today. So go back what? and look at what's happened, closures and mergers and corporatization, and you know we, we see it in a lot of segments of the economy. Now, I, I don't know, I, I take a little bit of exception with what you said. I don't know that hospital rates are a better indicator of whether we should or should not be shut down. And the reason I think it matters why is so that we can make apples-to-apples apples comparisons. That's the only thing. If, yeah. if the people going into the hospital today, you know, in other words, if everybody who gets the sniffles runs to the hospital and says, check me in, we need to know that compared to whether that was the case when hospitalization rates were X so many months ago. One of the things the governor said the other day, I, I believe it was that the average stay is now five days down from 11. Right. So therefore, there's less pressure on the system if people are staying not as long. So the same number of people in the hospital today aren't going to put the burden on that it did seven months ago if they're only staying half as long. So I, those, I, I think that, that's why some of those things matter, and that's what bugs me a little bit about this constantly shifting approach is that we, we, you know, we just got used to counting percentages of tests, and now we're doing hospitalization rates. Right, and, and I should say, I have serious reservation with the idea that the percentage, so that 0.02% number, and in two, his last two uh, press conferences, he has called it a, Governor Cuomo has called that a very important number. He has called that the most important number. I'm not really sure why he says that well, or exactly. why he thinks why, that. Why, nine but, months in, why did this become the most important number this week when it wasn't a number we even paid any attention to right. for all this other time? Well, and I think from my point of view, when I say I think hospitalization rate is a better a better metric to use to determine the the community situation, so to speak, is not from a pure, you know, hospitalization rate among positive patients is or positive COVIDs 
is, you know, 3% or 4% or whatever the case may be. I mean, literally to capacity. So if you are at, say, 60% capacity in any given community, maybe folks should start thinking about that. And maybe you should start to figure out a way to try to like prevent some additional spread. Or if you're getting to 80, 90% full, because that is when you're talking about, because these numbers he's basing on, according to the last press press conference, at least, are around uh, surge and flex capacity numbers too. So we're not talking about basic capacity. We're talking about 100, pre-COVID 100% plus 25%. Right. So, you know, you're talking about more beds. And if you are getting into that that zone, it's to me, I just think it makes it, it makes more logical sense to say that if your hospital capacity in the region has reached 90 percent, it's probably time to do something to prevent people from <laughs> to prevent the community from getting to 100 percent. Sure. I mean, that makes sense. And, and from that standpoint, I understand it. I, I the other thing we talked about a lot this morning on the Finger Lakes Morning News is why did this happen? All summer long, statewide, we were at less than 1% positivity. We've been in the fours for roughly maybe three to four weeks, and yesterday it was 5.7%. And here in the Finger Lakes, which again includes Monroe County and the state's counting, we're at 7%. What happened? That, that's, that's a question to me that seems so fundamental, and I don't even see it being asked. Is it, I, I mean... Well, I think what, it, what were we doing differently back in July when nobody, I mean, relatively speaking, hardly anybody had it and we thought we were going to maybe wipe it out to now we have this resurgence back to almost March-April levels? Well, it's got to be. And I mean, in a lot of metrics, we're past that point, right? Like we're we're now in worse shape than we were in the spring. I mean, did people stop wearing masks? Are we, is it all these little secret backyard parties? Oh, it's all, it's the, it's the small get togethers. Absolutely. I mean, I can think of, so. But nobody was doing that in the summer? Well, they were doing it outside. And that's the difference. I mean, the, you know, viruses like this just yeah. frankly don't, don't move as well in the summer. The interesting thing that I've held off on saying on saying on the podcast before is I know a lot of people who are well-intentioned, thoughtful people who in 98% of their life are following the rules to an absolute T. And then in 2% of circumstances are doing things that they shouldn't be doing to the letter to the the letter of the guidance frankly I think you're being real generous and saying it's 982 I think it might be more like 7030 okay <laughs> I, but no I, I okay I've observed the same thing and that's and, what makes it hard sometimes to to get my head around all this is that I mean and I did it I I, I went to a wedding this summer with people that that we knew a couple of but yep. mostly didn't and there were 40 people outdoors at picnic tables all mask free in relatively close contact for a long time yeah. and i i don't know why we did it i guess it was summer and it was 0.9% and we thought there was nothing to worry about i i see i mean i'll in my own company there's been inconsistency in terms of who's wearing masks and who isn't and when yeah. and and so i know there's definitely a very wrong-headed feeling among a lot of people that I won't get it from people I know. If a couple of my friends well, come over, that's okay. If a couple of strangers walked in on the street, I'd recoil in horror. And of course, there right. is no difference. Yeah, and I think this is part of, and if we're taking the governor at his word, we're going to see in upstate New York a reduction in the total allowed uh, bodies inside of a restaurant, for example, to be pulled to 25%. I think he's trying very hard not to make it zero. Right. But because, I think there's no doubt. We're going well, to be rolled back into what we refer to as phases back in March. That's coming, like you said, I think within a week that's coming. So to that end, is it though? Because if, if that is, because here's what I think may end up happening. And this is... I'm not sure why I feel this way, but it's just consuming all of this information on a daily basis and hearing the mixed messaging that even comes from the governor about what needs to be done and, and data and public safety and yada, yada, yada. Um, I think what we're going to see is a lot of shuffling at the surface. So 
changing of what orange means. Red means something different. We've already seen it with schools. Schools can stay open under any circumstances they so choose now. They can also close under any circumstances they so choose. We're going to see things shuffled in such a way where it appears as though things have gotten more intense or that restrictions have gotten more intense, but they don't actually get more intense. Example, I think with what the governor has said, even this, you mentioned Jennifer Lukey's uh, reporting, you know, that video, I think I saw it on Twitter, but I saw a video somewhere where she took the question she asked before Thanksgiving. Yeah. And the question when he was addressing that same topic recently, I think maybe late last week or early this week, where he says gyms and salons aren't the problem. They have enough safety measures in place. We don't need to clamp down on them. So we may actually see a scenario where where restrictions are actually lessened in some ways, but the appearance will be that we are going more we are going more in depth. And I think at the end of the day, that's my fundamental problem with all of this since day one. We've had viruses before. We've had outbreaks before. How do you stop an outbreak of a virus? You find out who's got it. You get them away from people who don't. We really haven't done that very much during these nine months. What we've done more of is treat everyone as if they have it and put us through these constantly shifting metrics and colors. You know, we had the case of the Jewish Community Center that was on the Brighton-Henrietta line that was allowed to use, I think, the Brighton side of the building only if you entered through the Brighton doors. The Henrietta the side. Next, okay, the Henrietta <laughs> side. I knew it was one or the other. And, and only if you went through that door, as if that made a difference, and then the state, realizing how idiotic that all sounded, stepped in the next day and said, no, you're just closed. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting, and unfortunately, we're not going to have time to get to a few of the other topics that we wanted to get to, but we'll get to them next week. Um, the last thing I want to touch on uh, today related to the... the pandemic in general is vaccine. We are now days away from uh, from distribution or the first round of distribution. 170,000 doses are going to be distributed to nursing homes, staff, and residents. Good thing because it's, it's moving around in nursing homes like wildfire right now, even locally. Yeah. Um, and we've seen these outbreaks like the one in Newark uh, play out sort of slowly, but really impact a lot of people. Um, and the the data seems to be pointing toward a vaccine that is really effective where the antibody uh, load of those who are getting the vaccine is several time, several hundred times greater than those who even had the virus, which clearly good news in the grand scheme of things. But, uh, and I kind of guess I assumed this was coming given the anti-vax uh, uh, discussion around this, uh, an assembly member from downstate uh, introduced a bill on the 4th of December, I believe, to uh, mandate the COVID-19 vaccine if uh, we cannot reach or if the state cannot willfully reach herd immunity. On the surface, I don't want to get into the nuts and bolts of this, but and who knows if this even has legs to to get all the way to the governor's desk because even the governor himself has said repeatedly you can't force people to vaccinate even though the state has forced people to vaccinate for years um surface level what are your thoughts on this uh you're familiar with the satirical publication the onion (laughs) of course (laughs) i'm surprised that they can even stay in business the difference between what they do and the actual news has become so thin that i'm surprised they're still in business so uh, i don't Nothing surprises me anymore. Uh, Nothing does. Should we be frightened as hell that someone wants the government to have the ability to stick a needle in our arms? Yeah. I I don't know if it'll ever happen. I'm I'm just, I'm hopeful that we will, uh, there was a story today, uh, and I don't remember which, if it was upstate. One, one One of the Rochester medical facilities is preparing to receive a pretty good sized dose of the vaccine. So so some people in Monroe County may be getting it in the next few days. You are I'm, I'm, yep. I'm hopeful that this will work. 
and, and put this behind us. I, I've, I've been saying for a while, and I'm kind of solidifying in my thinking, I think it would not be unrealistic to expect that by Labor Day 2021, we're back to relatively normal living. Interesting stuff. It would be, that would be well-timed. And it's, it's interesting. It even seems to be the messaging from the, the health officials on the federal and state level too. Don't expect things to change in quarter one or quarter two. But because, right, a lot, of, a lot of people in America aren't even going to be able to get this vaccine until March or April. Right. And they're going to start with, uh, and rightfully so, with the high-risk population. So for Joe Average on the street, you're not going to get vaccinated in December or January or even February. So that's just, I'd been saying that for a while based on some of the sports cancellations and things. And I just, the more I see the way this is playing out, I, I think that would be a reasonable and it's also sort of a psychological point in the year for most of us, you know, end of summer. It would represent getting back to school. So I, I think that would be a reasonable expectation if the rollout of the vaccine goes decently is that maybe by next Labor Day uh, we put away our masks and we, we remember this as a bad nightmare. Yeah, maybe. In the meantime, though, we will be back next week. Obviously, we're closing in on Christmas and we will at some point here within the next few weeks uh, be sort of looking back at the biggest stories of 2020, the biggest stories that weren't COVID. I, I was going to say, we'll look back at the I, second biggest story. Yeah, we'll look back at stories two <laughs> through six and not number one. Uh, where can folks listen to you Monday through Friday? I'm on the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio in Geneva. That's 106.3 FM now and 1240 WGVA. In Auburn, it's 98.1 FM and 1590 AM WAUB. The Weekend Debrief is a production of FL1 Digital Media. Check the show out on Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Have a question for us? Email it to debrief at fingerlakes1.com. You can also check out our daily debrief, which is a shortened version of this podcast, where we dive into local issues and headlines with the people behind them. Check that out by visiting fingerlakes1.com slash daily. You can also find those episodes in this very feed on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts, wherever you are listening from. Thanks again for joining us today, and we will see you next time.